Welcome to the Real Clear Politics Takeaway for Friday, October 20th. I'm Andrew Walworth. Well, last night, President Joe Biden delivered a rare address to the nation from the Oval Office. He described the United States as the, quote, indispensable nation standing by both Israel and Ukraine at what he called an inflection point in world history. He will send to Congress a request for as much as $100 billion in wartime aid that links the two conflicts together, hoping to build bipartisan support for a combined war effort. Well, also on the Hill, the drama over who will become the next Speaker of the House continued all week. And as of right now, and we're taping this on Friday morning, the chamber is debating whether to hand the gavel to Jim Jordan or whether to continue the fight. And it doesn't look like Jordan has the votes. Joining me to talk about all this are Real Clear Politics president and co-founder Tom Bevan and Washington Bureau Chief Carl Cannon. So, Carl, the president said on Thursday night, and this is the quote, history has taught us that when terrorists don't pay a price for their terror, when dictators don't pay a price for their aggression, they cause more chaos and death and more destruction. They keep going. And the cost and the threats to America and the world keep rising. So this strategy of tying these two conflicts together, uh, is it going to work? And what did you think of the speech overall? Is it going to work? I mean, Joe Biden thinks he's stating plain truths, Andy. He's, he, said, uh, he, said, look, he said, look, Hamas and, and Vladimir Putin are different threats, but they share a common goal. He said, and this is a direct quote, they both want to completely annihilate a neighboring democracy, end quote. Now, you know, there's, we've had a debate in this country for more than 100 years. Uh, can can America make the world safe for democracy? Can we be the world's policemen? And we answer this different ways at different times. But what Joe Biden is saying is, you know, we we didn't ask for this. This is what's happened, and we have to. And America has to play a role. He 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 said, as his birth president Franklin Roosevelt assured, assured Americans um, months before sending them to overseas, your boys will not be in any overseas war. He said he said. Uh, we're going to, we're, but providing munitions to these de- desperate democracies, um, uh, you know, is what we should be doing. He even used Roosevelt's phrase, the arsenal of democracy. So as far as I know, the president's stating it the way he sees it. And we don't really know what Republicans will think because the Republicans don't even have a leader in the House, as you mentioned. But, you know, Britt Hume, who worked for so- Fox News and covered the White House for many years with distinction, first for ABC News, um, thought it was one of the best speeches of Biden's presidency. And I, don't disagree. It was about 15 minutes. He was at the Resolute desk. I mean, the reviews of his appearance in Israel earlier in the week uh, were not great. I think that's fair to say. Do you think he did better? And did he come off as a stronger president, which is what I think the fear is, right? Yeah, I thought, well, I thought so, but you tell me what you think. But Phil Wegman, who wrote the story for us this morning, uh, he made the same point you, you did, Andy. He saw the symbolism in the Resolute desk and Biden was attempting to sound resolute. He said, "American, America's enemies are hoping for diminished American resolve. And Biden said, we cannot and will not let terrorists like Hamas and tyrants like, like Putin win. I refuse to let that happen. So he certainly projected strength. Um, whether the country rallied behind him, I can't say. You know, the news coverage of, of the Hamas-Israel war isn't encouraging, but, you know, I, I don't know how much influence Joe Biden has with news editors who, who trumped up, you know, trumped up, hyped this this phony story about Israel bombing a hospital. I, I don't know. You'd have to ask them, right? <laughs> what do they think? Yeah. Well, I, yeah, I want to talk about that as well. But Tom, first, I'd like to get your 
take on the strategy here, which is to link these two conflicts together in, a, in hopes of getting this $100 billion package through Congress. It's probably smart, but look, the, because the Ukraine funding was running into a real problem, right, in the House with the Republicans and even some in the Senate, right? There were some Republicans in the Senate, you know, Mitch McConnell got rebuked on trying to include that uh, aid package to Ukraine uh, by by members of his own caucus, even members of his own leadership. So there was a real divide uh, among Republicans. Now, you know, you add this Israel-Hamas thing to the mix, and you've got Republicans who are eager to support Israel, very eager, and you've got left-wing Democrats who don't want to support Israel, right? They want to they cease fire. They don't want to be sending Israel weaponry and, and all of those things. So, you know, Biden has gained some currency, I guess, uh, with with Republicans who are eager to support Israel, um, but he's lost some with with some members of his own party. So, I, I suspect it'll pass, but it's definitely a complicated situation, which is why I think they linked it. I mean, if they if they were to do these things separately, it might be a different outcome. But I think for the moment, they're probably and again to Carl's point, Republicans don't have they're they're completely fractured in the House. They don't have any unity. They don't have a leader. They can't really rally the troops to defend against this or propose alternatives or to do anything really at this point. So um, I suspect it'll pass, but but who knows? I mean, things are so uncertain right now uh, in the House of Representatives. And look, generally, I think his you mentioned his trip to Israel, and, and nobody was really clamoring for for Joe Biden to go to Israel. I mean, many of the things that he did there, he could have done easily from from here. Um, but the trip didn't go. I think as planned, and and there were moments that he looked rather weak. And uh, on the way back, in particular, when he was doing a gaggle with press uh, aboard Air Force One, he looked really sort of tired, and just his age was really showing. And I think last night, uh, you know, he was able to present a more what's the proper word? I mean, it was it was a much more staged, you know, again, all the trappings of the office, the desk, the lights, the the cameras, the makeup um, was. I know leadership. That's the word you're looking for, Tom. He projected leadership. <laughs> Go ahead and he, say it. He, he projected I, uh, much more strength, Carl, than he did in in his trip. And so, in, in that sense, I guess it was a win for him. <laughs> you know, one one quick thing, Andy, on on, on that. You know, that, look, this is he's harking. It's harking back to an older model. Congress is so dysfunctional, we forget how things are supposed to work in Washington. Tom's right about the fractures in, uh, in the two parties on these issues. What the president is saying is, Republicans, I'll give you. I'll give you all the Israeli funding you want. I'm with you. Uh, Democrats, uh, if you still support Ukraine, I've never wavered. That's where I am. So there's something in this for everybody. That that used to be a positive thing in Washington. You know, now we think it's it's pandering and he's being he's being cute. No, he's actually it's called compromise. And in this case, for Biden, it's no compromise at all. And he out because he sees the two issues as linked. So I I think it's your perfect presidential politics and. I don't know if it's going to be enough American funding <laughs> and another hundred billion out the door, Carl. No, no, I don't mean that. <laughs> I, I don't mean that. I'm, what I'm saying is that I don't know that armaments alone can stop worldwide Islamic terrorism or Putin's desire to reconstitute the USSR. <laughs> That's a big lift. I can't remember another moment in history like this where you had these two conflicts and you had sort of a what what at least the White House views based on this strategy where one party is for one conflict, 
the other parties for the other conflict. I mean, it's just strange. I mean, Carl, is there another time in American history where we've sort of faced two threats and the political divide between the two parties is so, so stark that this strategy of linking them is sort of seen as the solution. It's not quite analogous because this hyper-partisanship we have now didn't exist before. But look, in 1939 and 1940, this country was, you know, were we going to go to war, you know, to defend England? Um, this arsenal of democracy phrase that I, Biden used last night, and I mentioned FDR used it, it was, it's, it was the it was the reason why we weren't supposed to have to go fight in Europe. And on the eve of Pearl Harbor, public opinion uh, in this country was divided. Most people did not want to go fight in Europe. Um, and they certainly didn't want to fight in Japan, although with one exception, on the West Coast, there was people were clamoring. <laughs> they were ready for war with Japan because they realized the threat. The country was you know, divided geographically. You had isolationists in both parties and in the progressive party. There was a great scene uh, outside the White House after Pearl Harbor where Hiram Johnson, the great progressive leader from California, who was an isolationist, uh, walked into the White House and he looked ashen. He, he was stricken because he realized the country was going to war. And he also realized that his career was, as he knew it, was essentially over. He wasn't going to be a leader in this country anymore. We were all in. We don't have anything like that unified now. Um, we were attacked in 9-11. And you remember that, Andy, and there was very little partisan divide in the, in the immediate aftermath. The partisanship developed when President Bush decided to invade Iraq, which struck many Democrats as folly and not the right response. Um, and, and, and since then, since really in this century, we've had partisanship divides on every issue, every public policy issue, whether or not they're liberal or conservative by ideology. And it's almost as if one party favors one thing. The other party has to be against it. That's new. And it now extends to war. And I, I wrote a piece about this for, for Brookings, a uh, piece we did about partisanship maybe 15 years ago. And you look at public policy in World War II, on, on Korea, on Vietnam, there were differences of opinion. They were not partisan. They were based on people's philosophies and how they felt about things and their, their faith. They were based on other issues. This party attachment is is dangerous to America, and this has been building, and it's been coming, and, and it's a fraught problem. And I think I don't know how much of this Joe Biden knows in terms of the history. I spent more than we think. He he's lived through a lot of these all these events I've discussed, and I think he realizes that to get Congress together with a package that addresses um, both conflicts, it may not only be good politics; it may be what the country needs to get off this this partisan madness that we're in. Well, Tom, one of the events this week was this uh, missile that landed apparently in a parking lot uh, close to a hospital in Gaza. Um, initially, the press was quick to, to blame Israel for the uh, for the hit. It turns out that the best intelligence now says that Israel was not the source of the attack. Um, but I'm wondering what you made of the press coverage uh, and did it, in your mind, reveal anything about how the mainstream press uh, views that conflict? I see you're baiting me. <laughs> I was trying to phrase this as a neutral <laughs> politics question. <laughs> My blood pressure is already rising. Look, I'm a I'm a vocal critic of the media and the way that they conduct themselves. Um, and this was one of the worst examples in recent memory. And there are a lot of terrible examples. But to your point, I mean they literally 
took Hamas's word, Hamas, you know, propaganda, straight from their leadership, the mouths of their leadership, and put it on the front page of every newspaper and every TV channel in America, declaring that Israel had fired this missile, you know, at a hospital, killed a bunch of children. Turns out none of it was true. Not any of it. It wasn't Israel. It wasn't a hospital. And not, it wasn't, it wasn't 500. 500 dead. It wasn't exactly. genocide. It, was it wasn't none of that. I mean, it's astonishing. And, you know, in classic fashion, right, the, the media, instead of printing front page stories, retracting or offering the actual account of what happened, they sort of stealth edit their headlines and they keep changing them just to, you know, get them more toward the truth. You know, meanwhile, this stuff has gone around the world 50,000 times and everyone now believes it. And the, you know, the correction or the trying to correct the story gets one one hundredth of the coverage. So it's now ingrained in the, in minds of millions and millions of people around the world that Israel committed a war crime. And to make matters worse, quite frankly, you have members of Congress like Rashida Tlaib who are out there even after this story has been certified as a myth and a lie. By the president of her party. By her president. By, yes, by his yeah. her president and the administration and you know members of uh, Congress and, and you know the Senate Intelligence Committee. All these folks have said this is not true. And she's out there repeating it, inciting people uh, against Israel. And, and guess what? She's asked if she's going to retract it or she's going to post an apology. No. Nancy Pelosi's asked, are you going to condemn this? No. I mean, it's unbelievable. Tom, I'm sure they'll censor her just the way they did Paul Gosar. Yeah, for posting this stupid anime movie. video or whatever. <laughs> I mean, honestly, uh, and this is another reason, you know, if Republicans had a speaker right now, they could be actually taking Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar and some of these other folks and like, you know, holding them to account for the way that they've acted. Um, at least I think Ilhan Omar posted some sort of some clarification on Twitter, uh, suggesting that, you know, saying that it was, it was, uh, it was not Israel who fired the missile, but Rashida Tlaib has been unrepentant. I mean, just shamelessly unrepentant about it. So um, yeah, the media once again uh, showered itself, uh, not with glory, but with the opposite. Um, <laughs> Andy, can, Andy and Tom, can I read this? Uh, just the first paragraph of this Nellie Bowles column on this subject. That came sure, from the free press. Uh, <laughs> sir. Yeah, it's her Friday column. Uh, headline is the libel heard around the world. <clears throat> All right, I'm just going to read two quick paragraphs. So let this. So let's get this straight. Terrorists burst across the board of Israel, slaughtered innocents, raped women, took captives, including toddlers who remain in their hands, then accidentally exploded a rocket in their own Gaza hospital parking lot, and somehow in all of this, Israel is still the bad guy. Let's start with the rocket. As soon as it went off, Hamas blamed Israel, which in turn said, it needed a minute to verify what happened. Do you know who doesn't need a minute? The mainstream American press. Reuters, the Washington Post, New York Times blindly ran with the Hamas account. An Israeli strike, hospital, hundreds of deaths, 500, according to the Times. Um, the Times even ran an image of a blown up building, but it wasn't the hospital. The news ricocheted around the world, leading to attacks on synagogues and marches on embassies. It is the dominant narrative now and likely forever, even though it is a lie. She said, this is, the, this is a week I realized that the adults I thought were flawed but trying are actually on meth and don't care. Or maybe it's even worse, they know it's a lie. And do you think they know it's a lie, Carl? 
boy, I, I, I hate to think that, Andy, but I, this is so inexcusable. <laughs> I mean, the, Hamas is a terrorist organization that, that believes in murder, that lies constantly about everything. Why anyone would think to take their word for something, it's just beyond me. You can tell they're disingenuous, even if you grant okay, that this was some fog of war, which I'm not willing to grant that because again, they took the word of a terrorist organization over the word of, uh, they didn't wait to to investigate. They did not, they just jumped to this conclusion based on what Hamas was telling them. So, but even if you grant them, okay, this is a fog of war situation, the way that they acted after they found out that it was in fact not true is reprehensible. I mean, they made- Well, that's the tale. That's the tale. Absolutely it is. I was struck too, though, just how Biden handled this when he was appearing with the prime minister of uh, of Israel. And he said, it appears, I think I have this quote, right? it appears that it was done by the other team, was the way he described it. It was hardly sort of a, a full defense and, and clarification of the record. I'm just wondering, do you think that was just Biden sort of slipping up or was he trying to send a signal there or was, what was going on? Because it was an odd formulation oh, well, it's Joe Biden. Uh, for something where you would think you would want to be crystal clear. And he said on his, you know, on the gaggle on the way back from Air Force One, you know, again, he said something like, I, I understand why, you know, people believe this. It's a, uh, you know, which is kind of weird to say. And even if, even in his speech last night, he right. was throwing out these kind of, these phrases that are signaling. And again, because you have people on the left of his party that are saying uh, that, you know, one, we're never going to forget this, your support of Israel and, and how dare you, you know, not call for a ceasefire, which is what they're demanding. Um, so I think he is trying to thread that needle um, a little bit. And he's, that part of it's not great. I will say, if I could add one more thing before we switch subjects, because I know we have to. The other piece of this, this is absolutely infuriating to me that the media is not talking about, Joe Biden's only references in passing, is the fact that we have Americans that are being held hostage right now. And it is an outrage that all of these folks that are marching for the Palestinians and, you know, all this stuff, where they they want a negotiated ceasefire, they want all this stuff. Where is the call for Hamas to release these hostages immediately? That should be sort of a baseline. If you want the bombing to stop, if you want, you know, there to be some sort of some sort of negotiation that takes place. But the media is just completely AWOL on this. And even worse, I saw something earlier. The I think it was the New York Times, but they actually they said that one of the people was uh, not being held hostage, but called it detained. They used the word being detained by Hamas as if this was some sort of, you know, police action or something. It was ridiculous. So I have a, as you can tell, I'm getting worked up about this. I have a real problem with <laughs> the way that the whole hostage situation, because this is something going back to the political realm. I mean, if those hostages remain there or they die uh, at the hands of terrorists, uh, you know, or they they're kept in captivity for weeks and months on end, it is going to become a bigger and bigger political problem for this president because people are already, ask, are already asking, why aren't we in there? Why aren't we doing anything? And he keeps saying, well, right. You know, we're waiting for the Israelis. They don't want anybody on the, you know, in their, on their ground there, except for Israelis and blah, 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 blah. And that's going to, that's going to sound um, more and more hollow the longer this goes on. Well, Tom, Tom, look, Tom's right about that, Andy. You know, even if you accept that this is a war between two 
competing nations. It's it's a war crime. You know, we remember the Iranian hostages, the, the Iranian hostage crisis. Those people all were kidnapped from an American embassy, but they were all State Department or CIA. They were people who signed up for foreign service. They knew what they were doing. They were adults. They were they were civilians, most of them, almost all of them, but they were in the government service. These people just picked people out of their homes, including s- small children. They took women from a, a piece of music concert. And Tom's right. This is where's the where's the worldwide outrage about this? These these people were kidnapped from their land and taken to another country. It's it's something it's something out of the Middle Ages. I do have to change subjects here. Are we going to talk about the house? Yeah, I want to talk about the house. uh, The other hostage situation. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It it looks like uh, Jim Jordan is going to lose this. uh, I guess this is a third round uh, for him today. Um, This is as as of Friday morning. Tom, I'm just wondering, what is the rationale for holding this vote today? It looks like they didn't come close. And I will say the one thing that I don't think I was expected, and uh, I think, Carl, you were surprised by it as well, is, is to see Kevin McCarthy on the floor giving an impassioned speech in support of his good friend, uh, Jim Jordan. What did you think, Tom? Well, I mean, it's a mess. It's just a complete mess. You have... Uh, you know, a group of, there's just so much going on. Um, you know, you've got these, you've got these Republicans who, the ones who are, will never vote for Jim Jordan, will never vote for him. And one of the reasons they won't vote, well, they don't, some of them don't like Jordan, but some of them also do not want to reward Matt Gates for what he did. And and the group of eight that ended up kicking McCarthy out and, and to vote for Jordan and install Jordan, who's who Matt Gates wants, they don't want to do that. You've got another group of Republicans who don't want to, I mean, there's this idea that somehow, you know, these five Republicans are going to join with 212 Democrats and vote to, you know, empower McHenry as, as the speaker pro tempore or whatever, right. um, which is just insane. Okay. Um, <laughs> well, I don't know if it's, it's how do you really yeah, feel it's not going to happen. happen. I mean, but because- Look, Republicans don't want to reward Democrats for what they did kicking McCarthy out. As Carl's mentioned, this, you know, in, in many ways, Democrats are more culpable for the mess than Republicans are um, because it wouldn't have taken much on their behalf to sort of avoid this entire thing. But they did, and and they're enjoying the fruits of the, you know, chaos. And beyond that, you know, you just have you just have uh, you know Jordan's flaws, Galise has flaws, and and there's just no. Um, there doesn't seem to be any, well, obviously there's no easy solution to this or they would have found it by now. And Jordan just keeps, you know, I think one of his things is he's, he doesn't want to concede that it's over and, and he'll never get the votes, even though I think most people think that's probably uh, how this is going to work out. So it's just, it's a complete mess with no easy answers. It's even people in the building don't know how this is going to work out when you talk to folks there there's just a lot of confusion, a lot of, um, and a lot of, you know, rancor and, and, uh, bruised, bruised feelings, uh, from these various factions of, of the Republican party. It's, it's not good. Um, and it's certainly the polling seems to indicate that, you know, at least some folks are paying attention to what's going on there and, and are holding Republicans responsible and, and it's, it's, you know, hurting them in terms of their, uh, their favorability with, with the public. Yeah, it's not it's not good for the brand, Carl. Um, but is it also just an impossible situation at this point? Because this was uh, Kimberly 
uh, Stossel in today's Wall Street Journal, and it, it's on the front page of uh, uh, Real Clear Politics today. But this is what she wrote. She said, the Jordan refuseniks include a clack of New Yorkers holding back their votes over demands that hardworking Americans in flyover states once again be forced to subsidize New York's insane tax rates by reimposing full ducti- deductibility of state and local taxes. This is Rep. Representative Anthony Desposito on Twitter. I want a speaker who understands Long Island's unique needs, restoring the SALT deduction, safeguarding 9-11 victim support funding, and investing in critical infrastructure are our priorities. By all means, this is then Kimberly, by all means, let's prioritize Long Island. Are we just at a point with this narrow, narrow divide between the two parties that every member of Congress is a kingmaker at this point, and it's just impossible to sort of, you know, wrestle this, you know, caucus into any sort of uh, agreement that would, you know, put them over the top in terms of the votes they need. Well, that that's certainly a risk. Um, but that that was the risk before. And I didn't expect Matt Gates to comprehend that. But but so you know, he he only got seven other people to go on with his coup in his party and all the Democrats. And now the Republicans are in this spot that you describe, Andy, if people think if things are important to them and these New York Republicans, you know, look, they're eight. That seems particularly petty that they want to change in the tax code to get a house speaker. But on a larger sense, you have 18 moderate Republicans. And when I say moderate Republicans, they're not all moderate. Most of them are pretty conservative, but they, they, they're in districts that Joe Biden carried and they would like to be reelected. And what this thing, the longer this, but some of the, some of those voted for Jordan just to be uh, for Jim Jordan. Jim, I, I know that, but what I'm yeah. saying is that for this thing, the longer this goes on, it's not long. It's about 2024. If you, you listen mm-hmm. to the speeches today on the house, on the house floor, the, the surprising ones to me was not just Kevin McCarthy endorsing Jordan, who I think undermined him, but Kevin said, Kevin McCarthy said he had called the freshman members of the judiciary committee to get a testimonial for Jordan. And they all praised him as being a person who listens to younger members. And, and what McCarthy was basically saying is that Jim Jordan has a, that key Kevin McCarthy has a flaw that Jim Jordan doesn't have. He's a better listener. It was an extraordinary thing to say. Didn't persuade anybody, but, and then the Democrats get up and they go on this long, they give their standard stump speech about how Republicans suck and Democrats are better. And we'll fight for working class people and blah, blah, blah. And, and you re- and they're going to nominate Hakeem Jeffries. They they've come to the point the Democrats where they're election deniers. They're denying that the 2002 election went to a Republican majority that they lost the House. They, 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 and this is by the way their great grievance against Jordan that he's an election denier. Well, they're election deniers, and and that's become now something that you can say you can you can act like a person who won't accept the results of elections, be in any party, and nobody calls you to account for it, and. Will Rogers' old line, I belong to no organized political party. I'm a Democrat. That's now completely reversed. Democrats march lockstep, you know, like, like a, a mm-hmm. you know, a Wehrmacht brigade. They are very, man, they don't fear. And when it comes to these votes, and the, and the Republicans, they're more laissez-faire group. But if you're suggesting to me, Andy, that they can't get there from here, that's a very real possibility. Yeah. I mean, as long as we're quoting our favorite people in history. Herb Stein, the great economist, said, you know, a trend that can't continue won't. Tom, this can't go on forever, or can it? I mean, what is the end game here? No, it can't. Um, but I don't think anybody knows what the end game is. I mean, there's still talk. There's still talk that 
there could be a McCarthy resurrection that he could come back and just be like, Ooh, you know, do over. But even that, I mean, you know, are, are well, those here's how that would voted? work, Tom, you'd have to get Tom, you'd have to get the Democrats. They'd have to be half dozen Democrats who just voted president. All the, pre- all the people who voted for McCarthy would have to vote for him again. And that's how that could happen. So that's the math. Well, of it. yeah. So, but even that seems a little far-fetched at this point. So, but, but you're right. I mean, something's going to give at some point there's, there's, there will be enough pressure that, Someone's going to rise up and maybe a name that we're not even talking about right now, um, who's going to become a consensus candidate. It could be some backbencher. I mean, we don't even know because obviously with the current slate of candidates, they're not able to get there. So they're going to have to find somebody that'll, that'll be enough of a consensus candidate. And again, that person could come from, from anywhere, really. We don't really know at this point. I mean, we fa- we're facing this dire international situation. We've got uh, the government shutdown looming. You would think that if there were a time where country over party would matter, it would be now. I mean, this does seem to me like a rare moment when something has got to be done. And yet, going back to the Kim, Kimberly Strassel piece, everyone is treating this as if it's sort of a normal thing or an opportunity right, like to, an approach bill or something know, to get their little yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly yeah, but, but yeah, andy I just find andy, it the, bizarre. the democrats boasted about it being party over country they didn't use that expression they bragged the first time how they were all gonna that is it's the republicans problem they have to fix it and and that right. and nobody seemed to me i don't mean to join Tom and media bashing. <laughs> it seems to me that come on in. The few, water's warm. Not enough. Rep- <laughs> not <laughs> enough commentators and reporters say, "Well, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait. What's your solution to Hakeem Jeffries and to Nancy Pelosi, who we think orchestrated this, you know, this putsch to get rid of Kevin McCarthy? Well, who do you want as speaker then? Oh, we want Hakeem Jeffries. Okay, but let's let's be in the real world for a minute. Who do you want as speaker? They never were forced to answer that question. I don't even know if they have an answer to it. Well. This has been a very interesting week, and uh, it just keeps getting stranger and stranger in Washington. Um, but uh, we're going to have to leave it there. So I want to thank uh, Carl Cannon and Tom Bevan. Uh, we're here Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays. So bookmark this podcast. Uh, come back often. Uh, as ever, I encourage you to go to Real Clear Politics and read one article from a writer or publication with whom you disagree. Um, that's still a good idea in these trying times. So thank you for listening. Until next time, for Real Clear Politics, I'm Andrew Walworth.